If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you the rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, and everything you need is all in one place, and here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup's like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify, with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish a video podcast to Spotify. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. George Hunter, the daring Southern lawman. The South is full of history, extraordinary tales of questionable characters, outlaws, heroes, and thought-provoking narratives passed down from generation to generation like grandma's recipes. These real-life stories and exaggerations of fiction have helped shape the South and have created a larger-than-life accounts of legend. Each week we will uncover fun facts of historical events, interesting places, famous people, and everything in between from all around the South. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app to listen to the show for free. So grab your sweet tea, fried green tomatoes, and pull up a chair as we uncover little-known facts about the uncommon history of the South. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History of the South. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. And Harold, before we get into the podcast and uh, what happened today in Kentucky history, I've got a few updates real quick. Okay. Um, so now we have all of our links in one place. We have a Linktree account. So now it's e super easy for you to follow, share, and connect with our podcast community. Um, so the link will be at the top of all of our show notes. So that'll be the description of every episode where we talk a little bit about um, um, what we're covering in our episode, it'll be at the top. So all you have to do is click on it, and it will take you to our Linktree account. And on there, you will find our homepage. Uh, you can listen to it on Spotify, listen to it on Apple, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And at the bottom, it even has an email. So if you want to contact us or somebody wants to contact us, they can send us an email. Um, so everything is in one place now, and I think it'll make it easier for people to share the podcast with other folks and uh, keep up with what's going on. Also, make sure you subscribe to whatever podcast platform you listen to, whether Spotify or Apple um, and, and any of the others. Please subscribe. That helps us. And if you're on Apple, please leave us a five-star review and a comment. Just, you know, hey, if you like the podcast, type something in just short. Love the yeah. podcast. Or if you don't like it, <laughs> you know, tell us why. Brian, one of the things I'd like for people to do, if they would, uh, is submit their ideas to us. Uh, our, we're, we're not locked into a specific style or type of podcast as far as the subject matter is going to stay uh, as we've titled it but there's different ways to approach this and if someone has a an idea for us we'd be happy to listen to it and yes who knows we might use it you know absolutely and also i'm in the process of working on a store so we'll have merch so for those that want to help support our podcast we'll have t-shirts hats uh, coffee mugs drinkware different things many different items so i'm in the process of Great. working on it putting it together and so hopefully here in the next month or so it'll be up and live well that's great so harold what happened today in kentucky history well brian i'm gonna do two days because i think there's both days are real 
interesting to well, me. Two is always better two than is one. Better than one. May the eleventh, eighteen forty-six, the United States Congress declared war on Mexico, issued a call for fifty thousand volunteers. Wow! Which many many young men from the Civil War, or excuse me, from the South. As we're talking about uncommon history of the South, many of the young men in the South that went to that war ended up playing key roles in the Civil War. People like Braxton Bragg was uh, there. Zachary Taylor ended up being president of the United States, played a very important role, General Zachary Taylor. So the, the South produced a lot of officers as a result of that war in the Civil War. 1929, Isaac Bernheim, formed a nonprofit Bernheim Foundation to preserve and manage his 10,000-acre forest in Arboretum, 25 miles south of Louisville. And folks, if you haven't been to Bernheim Forest in a while, you need to go. And especially this time of the year, it's just absolutely beautiful. They have the carvings. You know, have you seen those trees that they carve mm-hmm. with the figures and everything? I know my son and his wife and some of my grandkids were there, and they posted pictures, and it's really neat. Uh, May 11th, 1958, cornerstone was laid for the new St. Joseph Hospital at the corner of Waller Avenue and Broadway in Lexington. So congratulations to St. Joseph Hospital, established in 1958. On May the 12th, 1881, to ensure equal education, all schools in Kentucky were consolidated under one statewide school system. Mm -hmm. So before that, there was no system. Each county or each town had their own school, their own curriculum, and their own way of doing things. So they could kind of set their own format, I guess. Yes. Mm-hmm. No common core back then. Yeah. And another story here that's interesting to me, in 1990, picking on Nashville by the Kentucky Hedgehunters peaked the at, at, at number two after 147 weeks on Billboard's country charts. This was the first album released by this country rock band after performing as Itchy Brother in southeastern Kentucky since 1968. Brothers Richard and Fred Young and Greg Martin added brothers Rick and Doug Phelps and became the Kentucky Headhunters. Well, about a year, two years ago, we were in Albany, Kentucky, and they have their festival. It's called Foothills Festival, and the Kentucky Headhunters were playing. And they still sound incredible. I yes. mean, they, they put on a good show. It was free. Uh, my wife and I just loved it and enjoyed it every minute of it. Well, I met Richard Young at a Civil War show in Nashville, Tennessee, some years ago. And we have talked about in some of our podcasts about the gorilla Sue Mundy. Mm-hmm. And Richard was really interested in him, and Richard's father was real interested in him. And I got him a copy of a picture that I had. Uh, so that he could give it to his father because of their interest in the Gorilla Sue Monday. So Richard is uh, quite a historian, I think, himself. Well, I can tell you, anytime uh, they're playing close by, we'll usually try to go hear them because they, I love their music. I do too, yeah. and they're, they're a phenomenal band. I yep. mean, they are a really good band. Have you ever had a slaw burger and a bottle of whiskey? I sure of have. I been have there. Too. Had a roommate in college from there. And we went down one weekend to go deer hunting, and he said, asked me if I'd ever had one, told me, I said, no. He goes, well, this is where the song kind of originated. And so, Greensburg, Kentucky. So when, when we came out of the woods that day, we went and had a slaw burger, a fry, yep, and, and a, a bottle, bottle of ski. ski. you got to have it. Which I'm one still a big fan of ski. I drink ski. Right. I've drank ski since I was a kid. So you got to have it. What a neat story. Uh, 
we got a gentleman here that's written a manuscript, Brian. He's a, uh, a lawman who's lived his whole life in Bardstown, Kentucky. Just down there this weekend? Yes. Now, to set this story up a little bit, I'll tell you how I came in possession of this unpublished manuscript. I don't think that there's many people that's going to listen to this podcast will have any idea who George Washington Hunter is. And there, there are people in Bardstown area, that if they're historians, if they know a lot about their town, they probably know of him. They may not know that he published a, or excuse me, he didn't publish. He wrote a book, but he never published it. So he wrote his own biography. Well, he wrote a story about his life experiences as a lawman. Okay. So it wouldn't be quite a, you know, entailed biography. He, he touches on his life, and we're going to get into that. But it's, it's a, it's, I've never, I don't know of, of any other lawman that I know of that's done this, um, especially in that era. George was born in 1834 in Bardstown, Kentucky, and he was the son of William and Nancy Hunter. Now, between Samuel's Depot, which is in western uh, Nelson County, and Bardstown, there's a little area there called Hunter's Depot. Okay? There used to be a railroad go through there, and I think the railroad maybe still does. Yeah, I think the railroad still does go through there. And that area, his brothers and him and his uncle owned a horse farm. This wasn't your regular horse farm. This was a serious horse farm. This was one of the best uh, horse farms in the area. It, it only The only rival farm to it would be co comparable to it would be the Alexander Farm near Midway, Kentucky. Okay. And that's a very famous farm. Uh, now, I went to Hunter's Depot to look this story up. Uh, I've been that area many times researching several stories that's connected to George Hunter. And I can find nothing left of it. So I, I'm not sure there's anything that's left of that farm. Mm. Okay. But um, they bred horses there for many years, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Um, in 1861, jo John, excuse me, George joined, <laughs> say that a few <laughs> times. George joined John Hunt Morgan's command, Company G um, of Morgan's Cavalry in the Confederate government as the war broke out. He sided with the South. His, his peers elected him as a captain, and he uh, bowed out and allowed his brother to serve as captain, and he served as a lieutenant captain or something like that. Um, they were on the famous Indiana-Ohio raid. Uh, they captured the two steamboats, Alice Dean and the Leslie Combs, and that ferried them across the river into Indiana, and that was the farthest that any Confederate troops pushed into the north uh, at that time, especially in the Western Theater. Um, he served there. He was, they were caught in Cheshire, Ohio, him and some other men, and were sent to Johnson Island uh, Prison, and from there they were sent to Charleston, South Carolina, in prison, and there he remained till the end of the war where he was paroled. Um, his work, uh, he's, he was offered positions in law enforcement, and I don't know the timing of this because the way he wrote the manuscript, he didn't really give a date. He was offered positions in New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago, Detroit, Washington City. Hmm. I mean, a lot of major cities wanted a detective like George Hunter. 
He said he never held any office but a town marshal of Bardstown and deputy U.S. marshal hmm. in Kentucky. He married in 1866 and had four children to Nettie Woods, and evidently she died um, in the 1880s, and he remarried uh, a lady named Laura Vitito, and, and, and it said with one child, and I don't know if that meant they had a child or she had a had a child by a previous marriage. Wow. I don't know. He said he always tried to do his job with, with the least amount of bloodshed lost. He, he, didn't, he, he wasn't a violent man. He said he, he meant business, but he, he, when he, but he tried every way possible to plan to do it in a way that wouldn't lead to bloodshed, which seemed to be pretty, pretty uh, effective at it. Yeah. Uh, he wrote this manuscript in 1909. Uh, and so, and do the math, I forgot to do that, and i tell you how old he was, but um, he died in 1922. So now, uh, and we'll talk about his death at the end of it, but uh, the, I told you I'd, I'd bring you back to this Hunter horse farm um, they had a, a judge, Felix Murphy, who was really well known at that time in the horse world. And these bloodlines, you all, if no one is, is connected to, to horses to, to, that's listening to this podcast or know anything about raising thoroughbreds is, these bloodlines, uh, there are books, volumes and volumes of books. Now, it's, I'm sure it's all on computer. They go back to bloodlines for hundreds of years on these horses. I mean, they... they they're more pedigreed than people, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he had horses. They were famous all over the world. Uh, they had names like Gray Eagle, Wagner, Lexington, Glencoe. Uh, these names, I've, I've even heard of these names, and I'm not a horse guy at all. But uh, uh, the Alexanders and the Hunters had the two. They seemed to have the market cornered on good bloodstock in Kentucky. Now, when the war came, here was the problem for them in Bardstown, Kentucky, or near there. You know, we talked about on our Southern podcast about the gorillas, Quantrell, and who Frank and James and all that we're going to talk about later. Well, this horse farm, <laughs> believe they are in jeopardy, okay? Because the first thing these gorillas need are what? Fresh horses. Fast, fresh horses. So, you know, a horse farm is like that as a sitting duck. You know, the, the Midway farm of Alexander was robbed a couple times by the gorillas of some really expensive horses. So the Hunter Farm was the same way, even though he was a Confederate and served the Southern cause. And these men, um, you know, said they were Southerners and whatever. I think they were more opportunist maybe than they were uh, loyal to the South. But they, they would steal them blind, basically. So they sent these horses, the real valuable horses, north. And there was this guy named John Morrissey. He was a prize fighter and politician in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> How did they hook up these people? I do not know. But he I think back then in New York you had to be a prize fighter to be in politics. Yeah, and just survive probably, <laughs> yeah. yeah. They raced them all over the East, said they won a lot of money, but they also lost a good many horses. Uh, after the war, when he returned home after getting out of prison in Charleston, South Carolina, he came home, and the gorillas, he said, he blamed them, a Quantrell's band, for the loss of a lot of their property. He said that the, he had two things he took the most pride in was horses and foxhounds, and he said when he got back, they 
were completely devastated. He they killed all of his dogs. They had taken uh, whatever horses were left. And he said, basically, we had no choice but to start all over. So I don't think the farm ever came to the uh, prominence that it was before the Civil War. I, I don't see that. And it's interesting that he was in the horse business, but he dedicated his whole life to being a law enforcement officer. And, and, you know, that probably didn't pay near as well as you would think that the horse industry would be if you were successful in it. So this brings us to the surrender of Quantrell's gang. Now, when he returned, his mother said that she knew that of Quantrell's men, Frank James, not Jesse. Jesse was not there. He was wounded in Missouri. Cole Younger, George Shepard, and some others, the Hall brothers. Uh, there were more than those names I mentioned, but they wanted to surrender and I guess George was Hunter was looked at as a person of influence um, a person that could be trusted and the uh, the general young was was the guy that was in charge of that area and would actually dole out these paroles to these men so they they arranged their surrender and paroled and paroled them. Now, what's unusual about this, Brian, is that that George Hunter gave this General Young his word that these men would go home and live peaceable lives. And he meant it. And he said he would take it. He took it personal to arrange this. And he went and met with these men and handed them them out their paroles. And they were allowed to keep their guns, their money, their horses, and everything, which was very unusual. Very very uncommon at that time, especially with the reputation that they had. You know, uh, at one time, the, the, the guerrillas were given no quarter. In other words, shot on sight. Shot, yeah. yeah. Prefer to capture them, get information from them, but if not, shot on sight. Among these, uh, Donnie Pence and his brother Bud and the Hall brothers, they did not leave this area of Samuels Depot, Bardstown area. They stayed. As a matter of fact, uh, we'll talk about that later, but I've seen a lot of these guys' graves. You know, I found them over the years doing this research. Um, so right after the war, um, <laughs> this is what really is unusual to me, is the if, if people want to know what it was like after the war, this is a little insight into that in Bardstown, Kentucky. He said he had a lot of trouble. He called them the young toughs around Bardstown. And now this is where it really throws me, Brian, because we need to talk about this in just a second. He said when their fathers were away, they did not have much trouble with them. They were off away to the, in the fighting in the war. He said they didn't have trouble with the young men. But when the fathers came back is when they had the most trouble with the young boys. He called them young toughs. Yeah, that kind of, and I was reading his manuscript, I'm like, and it plainly says it, it's not confusing. He said when they, the fathers were away fighting the war, he didn't have much trouble with them, but when they came back, and I'll tell you how bad it was. One year at the close of the war, he arrested over 700 persons. <laughs> in one year. 365 days in a year, so that's about two a day. Oh, man. That'd be if he worked seven days a week, and at that rate, he probably had to, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. I'm, I can't imagine. And in the in the eight in the, uh, all the way up in the eighteen seventies, he is is arrested as many as four hundred and eighty five in one year. 
Now, this is just in a small town, Bardstown, Kentucky. This is not a big city. For those that you know, know where well, Bardstown is. in a small town. Yeah, Bardstown's about an hour south of Lex, or uh, Louisville, excuse me, uh, maybe not, maybe 30, 45 minutes south of Louisville. It's just still a small town. You know, we talked about it voted one of the most beautiful towns in America, and yeah. uh, it is. It's a great place. So uh, after he started this career, now he doesn't go in to explain exactly when he became sheriff, but I assume as soon as he came back and arranged this surrender that he became sheriff of Bardstown, not Nelson County, Bardstown. There's a, there's a important that we make that distinction. So now the James boys, and, and we won't go into a lot of detail, folks, because we did a three-part podcast on the history of the James gang in Kentucky and in the South, and I don't want to, you know, rehash a lot of that because we've already done it. But when the James boys went back to Missouri, when Jesse healed up and they started their outlaw career, they remained friends with a lot of people in Kentucky. And they came back to Bardstown and would stay with their old friend, Donnie Pence. Now, Donnie Pence became sheriff of Nelson County. So... We had Donnie in Nelson County. We had George Washington Hunter, Sheriff of Bardstown, which is the seat of Nelson County for those that aren't from Kentucky uh, don't know the locale of this. But uh, he said over the years he had, he had taken this parole that he had arranged for them seriously. And when they came back after they started their outlaw career, he took that personally. Like he was responsible for them to be run out of Kentucky. <laughs> and, and and you could tell he devoted a lot of his manuscript to their stories and he went through every bank robbery and every episode in Kentucky and since we've already done that we didn't want to rehash all that but he uh, he spent a good portion of his book talking about the James Gang because you could see that it took up a lot of time and effort on his part over the years he said he received several threats from them um, he ignored them uh, he chased after him when he could. Um, it's like after the Russellville Bank, um, he got involved in that. I don't know, as sheriff of Bardstown or as deputy U.S. marshal or both. And he went to Chaplin, Kentucky, and arrested Oliver Shepard. He was one of the gang that robbed the Russellville Bank, and he did successfully arrest him, and he served three years in prison for that episode. Um Frank, uh, he said, could speak three languages, uh, German, French, and English. <laughs> he said he would go to the bars in Louisville and could speak well. That They were like, I guess, French-speaking bars in Louisville at that time and German-speaking bars, I guess, immigrants coming into the country. And he said Frank could go and converse with them, any of them, <laughs> in any of those three bars. <laughs> Well-rounded man. Yeah. Um, he, he, after the second robbery in Kentucky, the Columbia Bank robbery, he, he made a comment in there about him helping track them. He didn't, of course, he didn't catch them. But uh, he said an interesting thing, Brian, about their hoof prints of their horses. He said the, the robbers had steel shoes, which left a different print. And he said, I could track them and knew it was them because of their steel horseshoes. Have you ever heard that before? No. I hadn't heard that. I don't have it. I don't know. What other I don't know. metal did they use? I don't know. 
Or did they not have or shoes at all? Or did not shoe them at all, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you assume that all steel, all horseshoes are steel, and you'd assume that all horses had shoes. Because the blacksmiths were working with yeah. steel, so and I don't know. That's a, huh. maybe, they had, maybe they were marked a certain way. They left a certain print. I don't know. But he knew, you know, he mentioned that in his... Um, he said in 1876 he was employed to night watch a big lot of whiskey at Samuels and Company Warehouse near Deetsville, Kentucky. Now, Deetsville is just right down the railroad from Samuels Depot, and it's matter of fact, I believe these Samuels warehouses are still there. I think when you go to Who Deetsville. Who do they belong to now? or what? what I don't what know, but they are actively being used, and they've also built some new ones there. So, you know, that area has really exploded with the bourbon oh, industry yeah. right now. So he said he went there, and uh, he was, uh, I'm sorry, he was employed there to watch at night. And the one night that he was had to take some prisoners to Frankfurt, the James boys came there to kill him. And they, the, the other watchman that was filling his position, uh, they, they approached him and realized it wasn't George, and they did not shoot him. But he said they came there to kill him. And what time? And, it, and he wanted, they wanted him to know that they came there to kill him as a threat. So he was, he was not only a smart, probably a really good lawman, but he's also lucky. And, you know, I'd rather be lucky than good any day. I don't know about you, but, yeah. yeah. Um, the gang also uh, stayed at a place in Nelson County called Butler Thomas, and he mentions this a lot in his manuscript, that they would always go to Donnie Shepherd or excuse me, Donnie Pence's or Butler Thomas's. And uh, that name I hadn't seen very much. Uh, now, here's an interesting story that he brought out that I have not heard in all of my years of research in the James Gang in Kentucky, and I wanted to bring this out. Uh, Jesse and Frank's uh, father was from down around Adairville, Kentucky, and they were family relation by the name of Heights, H-I-T-E-S, Heights. Jesse was accused of having an affair. <laughs> <laughs> You, folks, you can't make this stuff up. Jesse was accused of having an affair with their uncle George Height's wife. Now, this was a lady that he married much later. His first wife had died, I think, and this was a lady that was like 20 years younger than him or something. <laughs> and, you know, here we go. And uh, she was uh, something else. Let's put it that way. And she had been sending letters to Governor Blackburn talking of plans of the James boys. Hmm. She was a turncoat, evidently. Mm. But she was also, uh, she, well, she'd sent letter, they sent George Hunter down there to interview her. So George went down and interviewed her. And at that time, she was estranged from her husband so that she was no longer living there. So evidently there was a parting of the water is the way I would look at that, and she was turning state's evidence or whatever. Right. But he said, I was not impressed with her character and did not, not know what to believe. So he didn't value her information so much because he didn't think much of her. Uh, there was a guy on, that worked for him down there by the name of John Tabor. He was an old Negro, probably former slave, that was uh suspected by one of the heights, which was uh, Wood Height, which was George's son, 
as passing love notes <laughs> from Jesse James to Mrs. Hyde. This is something better you find on Knott's oh, you can't Again, like I said, you can't make this <laughs> stuff up. And, and sadly, tragically, he was shot through the forehead and killed. And Woodhite was arrested but never convicted of that shooting. But he caught him passing notes from Jesse James to Mrs. Height, and this was, like I said, George's son. That would have been his stepmother, mm -hmm. and he shot him and killed him. And I guess nothing ever came of it. Um, he said that Frank was the real leader of the gang, but once once it Jesse was killed, Jesse James was killed. He blamed everything on Jesse, like a good brother would. Yeah, <laughs> just blamed everything on him. And I can relate to that. My yeah. brother's done me that way. <laughs> some of it I deserved, some of it I didn't. But I got it all regardless. Uh, but it, it was real interesting. He said Frank was no doubt the leader of the gang. He said Jesse was the meanest of the group as far as imp impulsive, you know, and the fly off, at, 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 you know. Right. But he said uh, Frank, was, Frank was no question he was the leader and the smartest one of the, of the bunch and the true leader of the gang. So we're going to change subjects a little bit. We're going to move from, in our last podcast, uh, in succession, we did a, a story about uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin, and we talked about the Kennedy, Thomas Kennedy right, right. plantation. Now, this story is connected to the, it's the same family, but some years later. Okay? Wow. And this is take, took place in Lancaster in Gary County, Kentucky. And Judge E. B. Kennedy uh, was a was a a judge of the Garrett Circuit Court. Um, he he was a the, him and this Grove Kennedy that uh, we're going to talk about later. Both of these men were very wealthy. Uh, uh, George described them as being very handsome, big men, impressive looking. They had a lot of money. Um, they were uh, very successful, looked up to by the community, almost feared. I think Grove Kennedy was kind of feared by those in the community. Uh, evidently, Grove was very uh, forceful in his uh, opinions. Uh, he was uh, a bit of a bully, maybe, as he described him. And Grove Kennedy um, was his nephew. In other words, Judge E.B. Kennedy was the uncle of Grove Kennedy. Okay. So uh, they were both, like I say, popular, well-spoken landowners. Now, for some reason, they got into it, and we don't know the whole story here. I, I don't, I've never gotten into the, the why that they had this hard feelings, I mean, bitter feelings. Money, woman, Who or knows? horse. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's like this was his uncle. This yeah. was his family. Grove entered the courtroom one day, um, and he was very sullen in his. They said in his countenance, he didn't look. He didn't look happy. He looked angry. Uh, he had two or three, four other guys with him uh, as the court had proceeded, and it didn't say whether he was involved in any proceedings. I'm sure he was, or he wouldn't have been there. Uh, but there was something going on with this judge, his uncle, that he did not like. His judge, this judge, had had crossed him in some way that, that, that he really took offense to. And as 
Judge E.B. Kennedy was leaving the courtroom. Grove pulled out his Colt 44 revolver and shot him, killed him instantly. Okay. Um, as Grove left the courtroom, he pushed his way out. He got out into the square there in Lancaster. He was headed for a motel there that was owned by one of his kinfolk, but he never got to it. Well, he, I think he got to it, but he went in the front, went out the back. But there was a bit of a gun battle there on the streets of Lancaster. But he got away, and the men that were with him got away. As far as I know, no one else was hurt. Um, he went to his house, which I have, I have looked this up, you all, where this house was, and it's set up on a big hill way out in – it's probably – four, three or four or five miles from Lancaster to the location. Mm -hmm. uh, he went up there, and no one would arrest him. This house set up on a hill. He had, a, had several men that worked for him, and I found out in this story that his father lived with him, and people were afraid of him. They, they just, the, the local sheriff said he wouldn't go up there and get, you know, he, he said he would be outgunned if he did. He couldn't go up there with one or two men. It, right. it, it just wasn't going to happen. So he requested the governor to send the home guard up there to arrest him. Well, uh, with some political pull, uh, Judge McCrory sent, excuse me, Governor McCrory sent a whole detachment of home guard to this house to arrest this man on a civil matter, which is very unusual, right. I would think. Now, Brown, you're in law enforcement. Have you ever heard of this before? Or you have been in law enforcement? I have, yeah. Th not on a civil, uh, but if he'd killed his uncle, that wouldn't be civil. That'd be criminal. Well, I meant uh, this would be a – well, you've ever heard of the military being used? Oh, the military, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. what I meant was so, the yeah, the home guard, used yeah. on a – Case like yeah, that. I mean, uh, there's this little thing called the Constitution yeah. that, <laughs> that kind of prohibits that kind of behavior. But Well, the Home Guard didn't arrest him. I mean, they, they couldn't, they, for whatever reasons they gave, they, they were going to mess with him, and they left. I guess they didn't want to, because they would have had to end up in just a, a full combat shootout. Right. And I thought they, maybe they were, whatever reasons, they did not want to get involved with that. But that's the way it happened. So they came to George Hunter, the sheriff of Bardstown. Now, you know, this is Lancaster, Kentucky, which is what? 30, 40 miles from Bardstown, Kentucky? No, it'd be further than that. It's Maybe 60 miles? It, probably. And then you've got to think, though, that's by horse. I mean, that's, to, you know, by car today would be, you know, but how long did it take by horse to come from there? Well, he, to, to he actually took the railroad. We, I was going to talk about that. Oh, okay. I didn't well, know that. Did you know? I didn't know there was a railroad that connected there. That's, that's been some time ago. Yeah. But they offered him $500, the governor did, offered him $500 and all expenses to arrest Grove Kennedy. So he agreed to take the job. Now, I don't know how things worked with him and his job, and if you know when you're thinking about the big picture here, how did— Well, if he was also a U.S. Marshal, then he would have— U.S. Deputy Marshal. Or U.S. Yeah. Deputy Marshal, mm -hmm. right. He, he would still have the uh, jurisdiction probably for this territory or, yeah. or however they broke it up. But I don't know who took his job while he was away from Bardstown. Probably the same that. guy that watched the liquor barrels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. But, you know, I wonder it's how. It's kind of like on Mayberry when, when Andy had to go out of town. You know, they yeah. were swearing goober and, yeah. and Otis and different <laughs> things. So. Well, he took the train, he said, the Knoxville Express to Lancaster to scout out the situation. Now, he went completely incognito. He didn't want anybody to know who he was. 
he, he, he tried to uh, go at a time when there weren't many people there, and he went, he, he went out in the country there from Lancaster, which is a pretty good ways out there, and he scouted the situation out, looked at it. He thought about approaching the house by himself and decided that wasn't the right thing to do. So he goes back to Bardstown, and he plans. He, he gathers seven or eight men, and uh, he decides to come back. And it, it, he didn't say how long this was between these two attempts. So he, didn't, he didn't give us that information. So he, he waited to come at night, and he went in with seven or eight guys, deputies. And they surrounded the house, and hid it, he hid in the hog lot. He wouldn't expect a guy to hide in the hog lot, but he did. And he waited till daylight. And uh, Grove came out of the house on his way to the barn or the outhouse, one of the others, two different privy. Or there's two different versions of this story. And he just walked up to him with, a, with his double-barrel shotgun and pointed it to him when he opened the door and said, said uh, you're under arrest. And he said, <laughs> he said, well, George, you got me at last. You're the only one that could have done this without bloodshed. I don't know if that was true or not. I had a hard time with that statement. First of all, did Grove Kennedy know who he was? I mean, he may have told him who he was. Maybe that's why he used the... Well, I'm sure he had a reputation. Maybe. That kind of seemed a little stretched. Maybe, maybe not. He said, well, George, you kind of got me. So they took him to Lancaster and placed him in the jail and charged him, but they didn't keep him there but a short time because they were afraid that his influence and in the problems community. there in the community, they would break him out. So they, he took him by train on to Bardstown and then on to Louisville, to the, to the Louisville jail for safekeeping. Um, Grove Kennedy went through three trials. He was found guilty in every trial. The first two trials, he got life sentence, and the last one, he got 21 years uh, for this killing. He served three years of it. And he was uh, paroled. Obviously, he had some some Still had some pull through the Sure. Now, what's good about the story is that he went on and lived a peaceful life. And, and actually, uh, one indication of it, he went into the ministry and never caused a problem ever again. So maybe he learned his lesson. Well, now here's what's interesting. For, for George, he received $500 from the governor, as promised, plus expenses. He received $450 from the Kentucky legislature, and he received $500 from the widow of Judge Kennedy. So he came out with $1,450 for the rest of Grove Kennedy. He made out. He did well. So that's, that's, his, that's his claim to fame there. Now, in his book, he had several chapters, and it's real interesting and we folks, for for sake of time, we won't have time to get into all these stories. But he caught such men as glass-eyed Charlie Henderson. <laughs> <laughs> Another chapter in his book was John Reed, the barn burner. <laughs> Virgil McGee, horse thief. He 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 captured jo Virgil McGee, the horse thief. Frank Myers, the safe blower. <laughs> uh, Harvey Pash, the colored murderer. Evidently, Harvey Pash was a colored man that murdered some other colored men that I read in the book there. The most famous ones that weren't connected to the James boys was the Mural Boys. 
And I've heard of these guys before. I don't know a whole lot about them, but they were a gang of robbers, and they took up with a couple local guys there in, in the, I think it was Shepherdsville, and George chased them all over the country and arrested them. The Poe family, like Edgar Allan Poe, yeah. P-O-E, the Poe family. Um, the West Devers murder, that was a big sensation in the 1880s there. Now, here's another interesting one. He went to Reverend G.W.H. Oates's house in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, to investigate a haunted house. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. A reverend has to call the sheriff. <laughs> a Presbyterian minister, Reverend G.W.H. Well, I was going to say, he wasn't no Baptist, because if he was a Baptist, buddy, he'd run the devil out of there. That's right. So this Presbyterian couldn't get the job done, so he had to call in George Hunter. <laughs> So on our next <laughs> podcast, we might touch on that story a little bit. <laughs> I'd okay. like to hear that one. Yeah. Mrs. Sarah Alexander Patterson, the lady horse thief. Oh. Now, we don't think about, you, if you think today about stealing a horse, Brian, we would think of that as, well, stealing depending the on the horse, I guess. Yeah. Now, if you stole the turkey derby winner, I guess that would be a major crime. Right. But if you stole some old nag out here in the field somewhere, people wouldn't think much of that, right? Right. Well, Evidently, back then, you know, you take a person's horse, you were taking a good chunk of his livelihood. And we kind of blow over that today. But, you know, back then, horses were modes of transportation. They pulled plows and other farm implements. You know, have you ever seen them make sargum? Mm -hmm. You know, and a horse walks yep. or mule walks in a circle. All right. Same thing with grinding hominy and corn and all those things back then. They would walk horses, would turn the stones. Yeah, I've mules. actually played uh, basketball on a mule. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chief Big Feather has played basketball on a mule. Yes, we are, the descendant yeah. of Chief Big Feather. <laughs> yeah, okay. His great great fifth great grandson has played basketball, uh, mule basketball. Uh, he chased other bad guys called the Reef, R E E F brothers, safe blowers. It seems like some of these names ought to be like a rock and roll band. Yeah. Name the, you know, the Reef Brothers. Well, if you were going to have a gang, forward. I mean, you had to have a good name to go with it yeah. or nobody would pay any yeah. attention to you. Yeah. Uh, Bill Coffey, the horse thief, and John O'Connor, the murderer. <laughs> <laughs> and strangely enough, that ends his book. Now, he doesn't, when he, when he finished the chapter about John O'Connor, murderer, it ends. And he doesn't, he doesn't say another word. That's the end of it. Now, does that mean this manuscript was not complete? And you have the only copy. I have the only copy that I know of anywhere, and I found it at a, like a book sale. Um, it's been a long time ago. I sat on this thing for years, and I thought about having it published, uh, but um, I just haven't acted on it. You know, if we only knew someone that worked in Hollywood, this yeah. would make a great Screenplay, <coughs> hint, hint. Yeah, it might do it. Uh, now, George died uh, in, I think it was 1922, and I have a, a post, and by the way, folks, we will put some pictures of these things that we're talking about on our Facebook page. We've got some really good images of George, and uh, he was killed by an automobile. Really? Which was in 1922. Let's see, I've got a 1922 Model T. Yeah. So this was the beginning of the, quote, horseless carriage. 
and he was 88 years old, and he walked out. He was in Bardstown on the street, and he walked out behind a carriage and got hit by this car going by. Now, it didn't, you know, he died a few, like three months later, you know, from these injuries. Of course, he was 88 years old. So, you know, he had lived a good long life. As far as I know, George was never wounded. He was never, uh, you know, think about this, you all. He survived the Civil War. He made raids through Indiana, Ohio, and all through Kentucky. Um, He lived a life of danger from the time he was 17, 18 years old till till basically he died. Uh, And he survived all that. Look at all the outlaws that he apprehended during his career. You know, the, the James gang showed up to kill him, and he just happened to be in Louisville. And then, you know, that's kind of an odd ending to your life. Yes. Some years ago, uh, I had a lady from the uh, from a museum there in Bardstown. Uh, I think it was the Oscar Getz Museum there. She called me, and she said, I think we have some pictures of Frank James and she said, I would love for you to come and look at them and tell me. And I said, well, I'm not a, ph- you know, f- a photography expert or anything, but I do know what Frank James looks like. So I, I went down and looked at the photographs, and they were of the right era, but they weren't Frank. Frank has a very distinctive look, and he has large ears. And once you really study photos of Frank James, you, you, you that's a, one of the first things you look for is, those large ears that he had in relation to his face proportions and those things. But what they had was a picture of George Hunter. And George was posing behind the jail in Bardstown with some folks, and they seemed to be clowning around, and one of them holding a little pistol, and it it just seemed kind of clownish. And we don't know what that was about, but we're going to post these pictures on our Facebook page so people can see um, the... uh, image of George Hunter and some of the other folks there. Uh, there's also some photographs of the Bardstown Jail, which George put a mini upon. <laughs> <laughs> now this old... In a, in every year. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of them. Now this jail is still there. You can go and you can actually spend the night in the jail. And uh, uh, it's a, I think it's a like a bed and breakfast or something now. And uh, we'll post some pictures of it on there. But what a neat story. Uh, what a neat guy um, to to write a book about your experiences in a small town like this. I have, I think it's very rare. Yeah. It's it's definitely a treasure. Mm-hmm. Very rare. It's that uncommon history that we talk about. Here. That is, and that's part of it. Hey, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Uncommon History of the South. Uh, to find out more about the podcast, remember uh, all of our links in one place. They'll be at the top of our show notes. Make sure you subscribe for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app. This podcast is created and produced by Harold Edwards and Brian Wolford.